If we take our Bibles, please, this morning, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start a new study in the book of 1 Timothy. And I've entitled it just simply an introduction to 1 Timothy. Now, we've studied several different books written by Paul. Remember, God used Paul to write many of the New Testament books. And we've studied the book of Ephesians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians. And those all were books written to churches, epistles written to churches. But there's three books, we call them the pastoral epistles, that Paul wrote to pastors, hence the reason pastoral epistles. They are 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Now the book that we're going to study does cover much of the pastor and his responsibilities, but it's, it's truly also for the entire church to understand. And as is customary when I start a new study, today I want us to do a little bit of history and background of the book so that we can have a greater understanding of the content of this book. Who is Paul, the writer? Who is Timothy, the one to whom he's writing? And we will cover some of that as we look at the first two verses of this great book this morning. So if you are physically able, if you would please stand with me as we read 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll look at the first two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Four points I want us to see. In this introduction and from these two verses, first we're going to observe the penman, which is the Apostle Paul. The penman, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul's not the author. The Holy Spirit is the author, right? But Paul was used as the penman to write the words down. Secondly, our focus will be on the preacher or the pastor, Timothy. Who is this young Timothy to whom he writes? The third point will be the purpose of the book, which is proper church order. And then our last point will be the peace from God, as seen in verse 2. So let's ask again the Lord's guidance. Father, I pray you guide now in this message. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul was a very highly educated man. We see back in, in, um, in the book of Philippians... In chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things are gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And so he was a Pharisee, and we find another passage, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a very smart, educated man. You know, Paul did not rely on his education. Now, I believe education is important, but our society, I I believe, places too much of a premium on education and not actually on having true wisdom and understanding in things. But we say, hey, if he has a degree, he must be smart. I have found those that have all kinds of initials after their name, and they're not so smart. I have found that have nothing after their name, that didn't even finish but the eighth grade, and they're extremely smart people. So education is not what makes us smart, amen? 
But Paul says, look, I had all this education. I had all these qualifications, but he refuses to put his trust in that. But rather, he says, I count all that loss in order to know Christ. Christian, that ought to be your my desire is not to know about Christ, but to know him. Paul also, before he was saved, was a persecutor of the church. You know, so many think, but my past, I can't be used of God because of my past. Well, how would you like to be the guy who, before you were saved, killed Christians? That's a pretty bad past. We see even in Acts chapter 7, as they're stoning Stephen, it says that they laid their garments at the feet of one called Saul. And by the way, I believe that day started something in the mind of Saul, and Paul, Saul became the apostle. Paul was converted in, in chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. And why was he heading to Damascus? To persecute Christians. But when he meets Jesus, Jesus says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It's hard for thee because of this conviction. And I believe part of the conviction he saw, probably many of the Christians, but we were specifically given in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is being stoned, he's not cursing the crowd that's stoning him. He's not angry at the crowd that's stoning him, but rather he's saying, Father, forgive them. And I would imagine these testimonies of these martyrs that Paul had witnessed and their stand for Jesus Christ was part of the conviction that was eating away at this Saul because he's like, I'm doing the will of God killing these people, but yet they rejoice in this Jesus as they're dying for him. What is wrong with these people? And you could just imagine the, the internal, if you will, conflict that he's having. But aren't you glad the day that he met Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9, that he was gloriously saved and became a changed man? He gave the rest of his life to the service of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul. Now, while we hold him in high regard, and I think we should, understand he was a man just like you and I. He was a sinner saved by grace just like you and I. And the same God that used the Apostle Paul can use you and I if we are submitted in serving him in the same way that Paul was. Now, I like the way they wrote in the first century a letter. Because they didn't wait to the end to sign the letter. Do you wonder why we do that in America? I don't know. But I like the way they wrote a letter. So if I were going to write you a letter and we lived in the first century, I would say, James Corr, pastor of Freedom Baptist Church, greet you. So you already know who wrote the letter and you know who it's written to right away. I think that's pretty neat. But we do this dear... And then we wait all the way to the end, and then we put our name at the bottom. Everybody knows as soon as you get the letter, you took to the bottom to find out who wrote it. So we might as well just put it right at the top like they used to. But he starts with Paul, an apostle. Now, I want you to stop and think for a moment because he's addressing Timothy. Timothy already knows who Paul is. They've already worked together. We're going to talk more about this here in a moment. But this is not a letter written to a church. This is not a letter written to a group of people, but this is a letter written to a person. And so if you're writing a personal letter, do you put on there, if I were writing a personal letter to you and not as pastor, I wouldn't put Jim Core, pastor of Freedom Baptist Church. I would put Jim Core, right? But Paul chooses as he's writing Timothy to put in there, 
Paul, an apostle. Now understand, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and every word of God is important, is it not? So why did Paul choose to bring out his apostleship? This is why it's important we understand a little bit of background and history of the book to understand why is he doing this? Number one, Paul later is going to tell Timothy, the things you have learned teach others also. And I believe in part of that, Paul expects Timothy to take this letter from Paul and share it with those to whom he's teaching. But I believe there's also another reason, and that lies in, if you look at verse 3, it's very likely Timothy is ministering in the city of Ephesus. You say, why do you say that? Well, because it says right there in the scripture, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That they charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, why is that important? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 20, hold your place here in 1 Timothy, okay? Acts chapter 20, as Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders... Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now let's go down to verse 28 and see something that he says to these elders of the church. In verse 28, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. What is one of the things that Paul has to tell Timothy is about false doctrines? Why do you suppose that is? Because Paul had already said there's going to be these grievous wolves creeping in. And so I believe Paul is using his apostolic authority, not for Timothy's sake, but for those false teachers creeping in for Timothy to be able to say, look, the Apostle Paul wrote me this letter, and so here's the stand we as a church are going to take. We're going to preach and teach proper doctrine, and we're not going to allow this false teaching to remain here. And he's able to use, obviously, the authority of Scripture, but he's also able to use the apostolic authority of Paul as he put that in the letter. Do you understand what I'm saying? So this letter was written somewhere between 62 to 66 A.D., you say, that's a four-year period. Well, okay, we got it narrowed down to at least those four years. Somewhere in between there is where Paul would have written this letter to uh, Timothy, which is after the conclusion of the book of Acts. Now, remember, the book of Acts stops with Paul imprisoned his first time. But it's apparent that he got released, continued to serve, continued to travel, gets arrested again before he's martyred, and that's before his martyrdom, his second imprisonment, is when he writes the book of 2 Timothy. But this is when he's free during that time between, my voice is cracking, I'm finally getting older now, released from prison. And so this is that time in which he writes this letter. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior. By the commandment of God. The word command there has the idea of order or authority. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I'm not acting on my authority, but on God's authority. So I want you to understand what he's doing for this young pastor, Timothy. Timothy's able to say, this letter was written by the apostle Paul, and in case you question his authority, 
His authority was given to him by God Almighty. Do you understand how this would help the young pastor as he's dealing with these false teachers, as he's dealing with this situation as a young pastor in this church, to be able to say, I have the authority of all of heaven behind me, because understand, Timothy didn't have the privilege you and I have of having a complete canon of Scripture in front of him, but he had the same authority to preach the truth that I have to preach the truth today, just he didn't have the privilege of having all the books written yet. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is helping this young pastor understand you have all the authority of heaven behind you, pastor, as you preach the Word of God. You know why pastors should be able to preach the Word of God boldly? Not because of anything inside of ourselves, but because we have all the authority of heaven to preach the Word of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to young Timothy. By the way, every time you open a Bible and share the gospel with a lost soul, you have the, all the authority of heaven behind you to do so. Isn't that amazing? All the authority of heaven behind you. So are your actions under the authority of God or under the authority of self? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Obviously, Paul had a very great desire for his own people, the Jews. But he understood God called him to the Gentiles, and Paul fulfilled the calling of his life to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Are you and I fulfilling the calling of God on our lives? So we've seen the penman the Apostle Paul. Now let's move on to the preacher, Timothy. In verse 2, he says, unto Timothy. Well, who is this Timothy guy? He's first mentioned in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Then came he, Paul, to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren, that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul and Timothy started working together here in Acts chapter 16, which is Paul's second missionary journey. Now Paul had been to Lystra in Acts 14 on his first missionary journey. Some speculate maybe Paul and Timothy had met during that time, but the scripture is silent on that. What we do know is in Acts 16, when Paul comes back to Lystra, which seems to be the hometown of Timothy, he is, Timothy is recommended to him, and he takes this young Timothy, starts training him, and he starts traveling with Paul, and Timothy becomes a minister of the gospel. So this young Timothy... It says his mama was a Jew, but his daddy was a Greek. Now, that created a confusion for the Jews. Remember we studied recently about in Acts chapter 15 when the Judaizers were going up to Antioch and saying about uh, the Christians need to be circumcised, they need to follow the law of Moses, and the council there said no, they don't need to be circumcised. So the question comes in, why does Paul have Timothy circumcised? Well, remember, as Paul was traveling, he would, as he would go into a new city, he was trying to find a group to whom to preach. And if the city had a synagogue, he would go where first? He would go to the synagogue, which is the Jews, because he was reaching the Jew first and then the Greek. And 
the fact that they all knew that Timothy, his father was a Greek, were concerned about him traveling. And so Paul had Timothy circumcised for the sake of the Jews, not, for, not because of salvation, not because it was something he had to do to be saved or be born again, but it was a way that he would be able to freely minister to the Jews because his mom was Jewish, but his dad was Greek. And so, so that he wouldn't be looked at as an outsider, he was circumcised for that benefit, okay? But the point being this, the Bible makes it clear that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I don't know how Timothy's mama and daddy met. I don't know why they were married, but I do know this. The scripture makes it clear that we're not to be unequally yoked with believer, unbelievers, right? And I promise you that every time a Christian violates that and marries one who is not a non-believer, it will create problems and disturbances and, and, and situations like Timothy had to face because he has a dad who's a Greek and has a mom who's a Jew. Now, it's different if two lost people are married and one gets saved. That's a different situation than one being saved, one being lost. And I have heard this so many times in the ministry, but pastor, you don't understand. She's such a nice gal. Or pastor, you don't understand. I think I can win him to Christ if I just would marry him. No! The answer is no, because God said no. And let me tell you something. It always ends up affecting the children. Now, I thank God that Timothy didn't run around with a victim mentality. Oh, my dad's a Greek, you know, so I can't do anything. No, he just got circumcised, got the situation fixed, and moved on. Timothy obviously was also taught the scriptures by his mother and his grandmother. Paul refers to this in 2 Timothy 1.5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in thee also. In verse 2, it says, Unto Timothy, mine own son, in the faith. So it is apparent that uh, Timothy was saved under the ministry of Paul, and Paul took him as, if you will, his own son. He says, my own son in the faith, but I believe that this relationship grew where he treated him as if he were his own son in probably many other ways. And then we see from this point on in Acts chapter 16 that Timothy and Paul are working together Truthfully, it seems like for the rest of Paul's life. Um, now, there were times when Paul gave Timothy an assignment, such as being here at Ephesus, and he would go there for a while, and then he'd be working with Paul, or whatever the case may be. But we see him at different times as you go throughout the entire New Testament that these two are closely working together for the rest of their lives. And at the point then of the writing of 1 Timothy... From that meeting in Acts chapter 16 till now, somewhere between 10 to 15 years have lapsed. So Timothy, obviously still much younger than the Apostle Paul, okay, still probably a relatively young man. And when I say young man, maybe in his 30s, but that's still young. The older you get, the more that's young, right? Um, and we don't know exactly his age, but we, do, we can estimate that they had been working together for probably 10 to 15 years by this point. The faithfulness of Timothy was an encouragement to Paul. 
As he writes Timothy in 2 Timothy, his address is just slightly different. Listen to this. He goes to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. It's not my son in the faith that time. It's my dearly beloved son. Hence the reason why I believe that the relationship between Paul and Timothy continued to grow almost like a father-son relationship. Timothy, best we can tell, remained faithful And we see through the writings of Paul was in great encouragement to Paul. Let me tell you something. Your faithfulness is an encouragement to others. When you live faithful to Christ, not only is that pleasing to God, but it's faithful to others. In case you haven't noticed, Freedom Baptist Church is not the biggest church around. And when you're not here in your place, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The rest of us notice. And may I say, it's encouraging to see everybody here in their place, is it not? Because I have said and I have heard, not that we're talking bad about you because we love all of you, okay? But if you're not here in the early morning service or not here on a Wednesday night, I've heard and I have said, hmm, where is everybody tonight? Place looks kind of bare, looks kind of empty. You know, just being faithful to church attendance is an encouragement to others to want to do so likewise. Being faithful and serving God in every area is an encouragement to others. Whoever made the lovely meatballs, that was an encouragement to me. Thank you. Whoever cleaned the church this week, I think it was Rich's week. Thank you. It's an encouragement. Is it not an encouragement to come in and see the place clean? You see, folks, when you're being faithful to God, it encourages others. If you're one who's walking with God and and thanking God for the blessings of life, that's going to be an encouragement to others, right? Don't you like to be around somebody who's an encourager versus somebody who's a complainer? Who likes to be around the guy that finds nothing right with anything and is constantly complaining? Nobody. We like to be around an encourager. And so this young Timothy was an encouragement to Paul. So your and my lives need to be an encouragement to others. In Acts 16, 2, it says about Timothy, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. You see, not only was Timothy an, an encouragement to Paul, but he was an encouragement to all those at Lystra and Iconium who saw the faithfulness of this young man and said, hey, you want a guy to work with you? This is the guy. You give him a task, he gets it done. So that is the young man to whom Paul is writing, this Timothy. Now let's move on and talk a little bit about the purpose of the book. Why is Paul writing this book to Timothy? One of the major themes of the book is for proper church order. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. And God has revealed to us through both the writings to churches and also these pastoral epistles of how he expects his church to operate. Did you know that? Now, there are some things we do culturally, but there are many things that we do here because it's what the Bible commands us to do. And so just a little brief outline, and we will be going through this over the next however many weeks it takes us to go through the book of 1 Timothy. But after his introduction here in verses 1 and 2, he gives instructions concerning doctrine. He says to beware of false doctrines. And then going through the rest of the chapter, he talks about pure doctrine in the church matters. Having a pure doctrine in the church matters. When we come to chapter 2, he gives instructions concerning worship. He talks about prayer 
And then he talks about women in the church. Uh-oh. Now I'm going to get myself in trouble, right? No. Then in chapter 3, he talks about the qualifications and instructions of the leaders. And he talks about the qualifications of pastors and deacons. Then he gives instructions, instructions concerning dangers, gives the description of the dangers, defense against dangers, and then he finishes the book by other various duties of the church. How are we to treat widows? How are we to treat elders? What about masters and servants and money and godliness? And all these things are covered then in the final chapters of the book. And Lord willing, over the next several months or however long it takes, we will be going through each of these and seeing how we as a church, according to the Word of God, are supposed to operate and our responsibilities in each of these areas. So I hope you're excited about what we're going to be seeing because that is the purpose of this book. And at the same time that Paul is giving instruction to Timothy of the proper order of the church, he's also giving personal encouragement to young Timothy to stand in the fight and keep going and be faithful. So as we see these pastoral duties and care, it's important for all of us to realize that these God-given responsibilities are for all, and that we're all to submit to the authority of Scripture. So when we talk about the care of the widows, when we talk about the care of the elderly, how do we share that burden? How do we share that responsibility? Now, not to jump ahead, but the care of widows and the care of elderly is supposed to fall on family first. And then if they're a widow indeed, as Paul calls them, then the care falls upon the church, not the government. And you know why we have the messed up system we have today? Because the institutions that God has created have gotten out of their lane and tried to cross over into somebody else's lane. And every time you do that, I promise you, you're going to make a mess of it. And that's exactly where we see our society today. And church, it's time we stand up and stop this. And I'm thankful it doesn't happen here at Freedom Baptist Church. But so many churches today have become nothing more than an a entertainment center or a social club. And I, but it's time we get back to the God-given responsibilities God has given us as a local church. And so I'm looking forward to, as we cover through the book, looking at some of those responsibilities of the church. So we've seen the penman, Paul. We've seen the pastor, Timothy. The purpose, proper order in the church. And then lastly, going back to our passage, we want to see the peace from God. Let's go back to verse 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. As you break that sentence down, it's amazing how Paul does that. He first introduces himself, then, again, as we already studied why, asserts his apostolic authority by the authority of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, but ends it by taking the focus off of Paul, making sure your focus is on Jesus Christ, which is our hope. May I say, Christian, that ought to be the way you and I handle situations, is divert the attention off ourselves and put it on God to whom it belongs. Now, for what the reasons we described, Paul had to assert his apostolic authority. But he didn't want it to fall on Paul the authority, because the ultimate authority is God himself. And then he reminds us Jesus Christ is our hope. Now, there's several reasons why I believe he did that. First of all, understand the timing in which we, we see 62 to 66, Nero being on the throne, 
and the intensifying of the persecution against the church, don't you think it's important that he encourages the young pastor and the church? Absolutely. And so he puts the focus on Jesus Christ, our hope. Again, folks, understand every word in the word of God is important. And Paul in his introduction doesn't just waste mince words and waste time writing a bunch of stuff and fluff like we do today, but every word he's constantly thinking about. And again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is directing the very words that Paul is putting on the paper, wants this church and wants young Timothy to understand your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is not in the government. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about this word hope for just a minute, because in modern society, when we think of hope, we think of some wishful thinking or something that may or may not happen. I am glad that the word hope here in this context does not mean that, but has rather the meaning (coughs) of a joyful and confident expectation. A joyful and confident expectation. It's not a, oh, it might come to pass, but it's a I have a hope in Jesus Christ. I know it's going to come to pass. What is the hope we have? I have the hope of eternal life. Now, that's not a, I hope it happens. I think it might happen. I wish it might happen. No, that's an, I have a, I have a joyful, confident expectation that I'm going to be with Jesus Christ in heaven for all eternity. That's a hope, isn't it? That's something to be joyful about. And the hope then, also, in Jesus Christ, is the fact that he, the bridegroom, is soon going to come and snatch his bride away. Is that not a hope? Well, he told Titus it is in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that not an expectation that you and I have that Jesus Christ could come at any moment and rapture us out of here? Are we living like it? If Jesus Christ were to return today, what would you change in your life? If you knew that at 3 o'clock this afternoon, the trumpet's going to sound and Jesus Christ would snatch you out of here, the rapture's going to happen at 3 o'clock this afternoon, what would you change in your life right now? And if the answer is anything that you would change, then you need to change it now because you're not living as though he could return now. Do you follow what I'm saying? If the answer is, I would change nothing, then you're living as though he could come at any time. But if the answer is anything else besides nothing, then you need to make that change now, Christian, because you're not living with the expected hope, the anticipation that he could come at any time. All those things you say, I'll put off till tomorrow, I'll do it later. If you could do them today, and if you knew Jesus Christ was coming today, and you would do it today, then you need to do it now, because he could come now. That's living with the expectation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Because to live any other way is assuming I have time. It's not going to happen today. But it could. And we need to live as though it will. I didn't say it will. I said we need to live as though it will. I need to live every moment of every day as Jesus Christ could come today. Jesus Christ could come today. That's living in the hope of his imminent return. But may I say what an encouragement that would be to these Christians as the persecution in Rome is starting to intensify, that today could be the day Jesus Christ comes to take me home. 
I know I have eternal life in him. So this would be the worst it gets because it gets better from here. And I'm going to live today for Jesus Christ. Live today for Jesus Christ. But let's continue on. Let's go back to verse 2. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's very interesting because in Paul's salutations to churches and to Philemon, he says grace and peace. So when you go through Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon, every one of those says grace and peace. And three letters, and those happen to be the three letters we call the pastoral epistles, he says grace and mercy, and peace. So let's break this down and see why would he change it as he's writing these two young pastors to include the word mercy instead of just the grace and peace that he addressed for the churches and for Philemon. Grace. Definition of grace. A special manifestation of the divine presence, activity, power, or glory a favor, expression of kindness, a gift of blessing. So God's unmerited favor toward me, the grace of God, the grace of God that provided a way of salvation, the grace of God that guides me day by day, the grace of God that gives me comfort, the grace in which we are to grow. Second Peter 3.18, But grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I will come back to mercy, but I'm going to address peace, since that's the other one that he addressed to the churches. Peace has the idea of harmony or order. We live in a world that's seeking peace, but can find no peace. Why? Because until you have peace with God, there is no peace. But I am glad in Romans chapter 5, Paul says we have peace with God once we are born again. Right? We were the enemies of God, but once you're a born-again believer and he adopts you into his family, you've been reconciled to God. You know what one of the great benefits of that is? I have peace with God. I'm no longer an enmity with God. I am now one of his children. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But Paul goes beyond the peace with God as he addresses the church at Colossians, Colossae, He says in Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to also which you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. So not only do I have peace with God, but I can now have the peace of God that rules, or the word we translate, uh, uh, another word we get from that in the English language is the word umpire. So the peace of God is to umpire, if you will, in your heart. Now, I heard many people say, hear many people say, oh, I have a peace about it. Well, the word of God, the will of God will never contradict the word of God. And sometimes people tell me they have a peace about something and they say they prayed about it and God gave them this peace, but what they want to do contradicts the word of God. And I can tell them with all due assurance, I don't know what peace you have, but I promise you it's not the peace of God because God is never going to give you peace about something that will contradict his word, period. 
Christian, it is important you and I understand what this peace is. And it's a peace that you can't explain. Once you've experienced it, you understand it. But until you have, you can't explain it. It's like a young person asking you, how do you know it's the right one to marry? I don't know, but I knew it when it happened. I knew she was the right one. I still can't explain it to this day how I knew it, but I knew. And all of you who are married know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You just knew she was the right one, right? I'm not going to put anybody on the spot because you're all looking at me like preacher. Don't call on me. I have no idea what you're talking about. When you know, you know, but you don't know till you do know. But let me tell you something, and I don't mean that to sound confusing, but the peace of God is the same way. You don't know it until you know what it is, but once you've experienced it, you know what it is. And it's a peace that passes all understanding. That's a beautiful description of it given in Scripture because you really don't understand it. <laughs> but that peace of God, we're supposed to let that roll in our hearts. That's what's supposed to guide us day by day. And aren't you glad that as Paul is writing to the churches and now writing to young Timothy, he says, grace and peace. Because you know what? The gifts of God that we have is his grace and his peace. But as I said, as he writes these two young men, Timothy and Titus, and those three letters, he adds one more thing, and that is mercy. And so I thought it curious. Why did Paul add mercy to the list as he's writing these pastors? And so I started researching and discovering that the word has the idea of compassion. Years ago, I was counseling an individual, and... This individual was flipping through their phone, not paying a bit of attention to what I was saying. And I asked a question and they couldn't answer because they weren't paying attention. And then I said, I think this is going to be over. Well, why? Because obviously this is not important to you. You're wasting my time because you're not even listening to what I'm saying. Oh, I'm paying attention. This really matters to me. I had seen this individual posting things on Facebook that I thought were very against what a Christian should be posting on Facebook. And to my shame, I kind of lost my temper and I said, what about these posts you're putting on Facebook? I said, you sit there and call yourself a Christian and you're putting that kind of stuff on Facebook, claiming that that's okay? Well, the individual got upset and walked out. I called Pastor Jim Ogle, a good friend of mine, and I said, Brother, I, I really blew it today. And I told him the story I just told you. And he chuckled. And he says, we've all been there. He says, not that that makes an excuse for it. He says, but I'm going to give you a warning. He says, you need to learn as a pastor that you have a skin of an alligator that lets things roll off, but a heart of compassion that will still love them and pray for them. He says, you can't let what they do or say to you bother you. You still have to love them. He says, it's a fine line. And if I knew how to walk it, I would tell you. He says, I'm still learning myself how to walk that fine line. May I say, I believe Paul understanding what it means to carry the care of the churches. Did he not say that in 2 Corinthians? Understood the burden that this young Timothy is under. And he asked for God's mercy. That heart of compassion. Because when Jesus Christ saw the multitudes, what do we see? He was moved with compassion on them. They were as a sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the individuals, he was moved with compassion on them. 
And what he understands is that if a pastor's not careful, you can lose the heart of compassion because sometimes with the things people will do, people burn you in ministry, it's going to happen, folks, that sometimes you can lose the compassion because you're trying to guard yourself against getting hurt. But may I say that doesn't happen to only pastors, but it happens to many of us. When we've been hurt, one of the defenses we do is put up a guard that says, I will never be hurt again, therefore I'm not going to show compassion to others, I'm not going to open myself up to them, I'm not going to allow myself to be hurt, I have built a wall around me, I'll talk to people, but I'm not going to let them within this wall, because if they get within this wall, they may hurt me, and I've been hurt before. That is not happening again. Let me tell you something. Each of us need to learn mercy, because yes, sometimes people are going to hurt you, but you still have to open yourself up and love them and show them compassion anyhow. Did not our Savior? How many times did the disciples hurt our Savior? Think about it. Lord, we're, John and I were having a discussion today, and we have a favor to ask of you. How about you let one of us sit on your right hand and the other sit on your left hand when we come into the kingdom? May I ask, do you think those words hurt our Savior? He's investing his life and pouring himself out to these men. We know for sure when Peter denied Christ and the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter met that there was such a look in the Savior's eyes and I believe it was a look of hurt that looked at, at Peter. That Peter went out and his Bible says he didn't just cry, he wept bitterly because he failed. How many times over and over did not the one who betrayed him betray him with a kiss? How many times over and over do we see our Savior still having a heart of compassion, although he was hurt by what others had done to him? Let me tell you something, Christian. Every one of us needs to learn to walk and have the mercy of God, that heart of compassion that it doesn't matter that I've been burned a hundred times before. I'm still going to open myself up because people matter. Souls matter. And I'm going to open myself up again and I'm going to allow myself to get close to somebody. And if they hurt me, it's fine because they hurt my Savior too. Now listen, at the same point, when you've been hurt, then comes that alligator skin of saying, I have to let it go. I have to let it go. Because if I don't, then I'm going to build my little wall up and I'm going to be in my little castle again and nobody can hurt me. I have to learn to let it go. It is a balance that every one of us has to learn and none of us can do it in the flesh. The only way we can do it is through the power and strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way we can learn to have true mercy is through the power of Jesus Christ. And I believe that is why the Apostle Paul included mercy as he's writing to Pastor Timothy and Pastor Titus. Because they all come from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is amazing again the way the Holy Spirit of God led Paul to write that from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord because they are truly one, are they not? Turn to Him for true peace. Turn to Him for mercy and grace. 
So a few questions for us to ask as we see the grace, mercy, and peace of God. Do you recognize all blessings come from God? Do you find your comfort in Jesus Christ? Do you have peace in your heart or are you fearful? Do you have compassion on others? Do you see the lost and their need for Jesus Christ? Do you have a compassion on brothers and sisters in Christ who may be struggling and help meet that need and offer encouragement? Do you show grace to others? The same grace of God that's been extended to you, do you show it to others? Do you quick to forgive? Are you quick to reconcile? Do you trust Christ or do you worry? And this is probably just a few questions we could ask as we think about the grace, mercy, and peace of Jesus Christ. But Christian, I hope you're allowing the Holy Spirit this morning to examine your heart. And maybe you say, you know what? I've not been showing the grace, the mercy, and peace of God in my life. Paul didn't waste words putting those on the paper. They're there for a reason. They're there not just to encourage this young Timothy, but to encourage you and I that we must live by the grace, mercy, and peace of God in our lives. So as we begin the study of 1 Timothy this morning, are we more concerned about the church following his commands of Scripture than what's in it for me? Because the church is not here to be a smorgasbord of what's in it for me. But this is to be an assembly of believers that are here to serve one another and serve our Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we a faithful servant of Christ as Timothy was? One that is an encouragement to others by our faithful living? Not just to be an encouragement to others, but to please our Savior. Do we recognize the mercy grace and peace that come from God alone. Let us bow for a word of prayer.